Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message on the Elevate Church podcast. We believe that God will speak to you wherever you are. Now let's prepare our hearts and hear what God has for us today. Hey, while you're standing up, can we just welcome everybody joining us online as well as in the overflow? Hey, we love you guys. You're just as much a part of this family. So glad you're worshiping with us. Go ahead and have a quick seat. Uh, we are in this series called Burning Questions, Burning Questions. And uh, like we, we are kind of, you know, ramping up and getting to some of the more and more hot topics as we, we went. In fact, this week I was all excited to talk about weed. Like I, this was going to be the weed week. And I was gonna, it was going to be fun. I was looking forward to it. However, uh, God did something this week. And because of uh, maybe even current events that we've experienced here, here locally and just really the, the culture that is happening in the world today, I do want to address the question of homosexuality and LGBTQ community. And um, before I, I read you any scripture before I quote any verses, New Testament or Old Testament, on this subject, I need to lay some ground rules. I need us to understand this is nothing new, that these types of, of issues have existed in, in cultures, in different era, eras, in different places, in spaces, in time. They manifest themselves differently but I have the privilege today, and I'm not saying that facetiously, I really believe that this is a privilege to talk about this subject because I do believe that this is really the, the topic of the day in, in our American culture. In fact, so much so that I'm not going to spend one week on it, I believe uh, God is, is making a way for me to spend just a couple of weeks specifically on this. But let me lay some groundwork, some, some rules just to be clear. Again, th this is not uh, groundwork or rules that Colby has come up with. I'm not leaning on my own authority. I'm not leaning on my own opinion. As I've told you from that, I'm leaning into the authority of the words uh, of God, the word of Jesus. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 7. As he is delivering one of the greatest messages of all time called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is going after ethic, after ethic, after ethic. He's just kind of flying through this, this list. And then he says this in verse 1 of chapter 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And we're going to keep reading in a second, but I have to stop right here because this has become one of the most misappropriated verses in all of the New Testament, especially if you are part of a younger generation, because here's what we like to do. We like to see this verse and see these words of Jesus and stop right here. Do not judge. Stop. You're not allowed to judge me. Don't judge me. You know, you don't know my history. You don't know my backstory. You don't know what I have gone through. And so nobody is allowed to, to judge anybody because Jesus starts off with do not judge. And if we were to stop there, it sounds like a command. Don't judge. So anytime someone calls you out on anything or points out anything in your, your life, we go, uh-uh, don't judge me. Like, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Is that not our trump card, right? You can't judge me because you're not perfect either. You have your, your own issues. And just so we understand, Jesus is not advocating a judgment-free zone. This is not Planet Fitness, people, all right? 
He's not saying the body of Christ, the church, is a judgment-free zone. He does make it clear, I want you to understand, that outside of the church, outside of the body, that it is the role and job of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us, but in community, in a body of believers, and I, and I understand that's not everybody in this room or watching online, but in a, a church, there is endless scriptural support for the ways we are to correct and admonish and train and, and, and rebuke people, and yes, to judge. Jesus is not saying don't judge, because the part that nobody reads when, when using the, the don't judge me argument, he actually gives us rules and, and tells us how we are, are to judge. He says, I know you're going to judge, so when you do, just know this. You better do it from the understanding that the same measurement of judgment you use on them, I promise you, he's like, it's like science, it's going to be used on you in return. So that's, that's rule number one. We need to understand that the same measure that we use. But then it says this in verse three, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Somebody say plank. We're gonna do some plank work today. Is that okay? Plank work. We're gonna work that core. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. And this is where he's condoning judgment. He's like, listen, you're going to do it. Like this is what, uh, it's only, it's inevitable that, that you do this. It's inevitable. This is what that we do in the human heart. We, we judge. In fact, he's saying it's actually necessary in the church to do. Uh, Peter, uh, in, in 1 Peter, it says this, that judgment actually begins with the church. The judgment uh, begins in the house of God. That's what 1 Peter 4.17 says. In other words, not everybody out there. Not everybody beyond the walls, everybody in the world, right? Not everybody because we love to, to grandstand and we love to argue and fight against some things. He says, no, judgment actually starts in here. It starts in the house. And so he says this, don't be a hypocrite. Verse five, first, here's what you need to do. Here's what we need to do. Plank work, take the plank out of our own eye and then we'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's the second ground rule before we ever look at somebody, no matter how loving we may believe we are being, no matter how right you think you are in the argument, no matter how much you just know something is, is better for their life than what they are currently experiencing, Jesus is saying, don't you dare confront somebody and judge somebody without first being deeply and profoundly aware of your own human frailty. Are you with me? Like, don't do it. You, you can't, you're not supposed to do that. Because you and I are never to forget the plank that only the cross of Christ was able to remove from our own eyes. Are you with me? Like, we're not to forget that. So before you go and address the sawdust, you got to do some plank work. And so here's what I know about humanity, and this is why I believe Jesus talked about this, is because our hearts left to them themselves without the Holy Spirit of God doing work inside of our lives, when you and I are stuck in a, a sin pattern, when we are struggling with something, we are professionals at creating backstory and creating history and creating all the reasons 
why, you know, this is my issue. This is, this is my sin. And you know why we do that, by the way? Because we're trying to evoke mercy from those around us. Because the human heart desperately needs and wants mercy, do we not? Like, this is what we desire. And so when we have an issue, like, we are professionally explaining, well, this is why I'm this way, you know, because my, my grandfather did this, or this is my experience, or this, this is what I have gone through. However, when it is someone else's issue that we have no experience with, that we have no empathy for because we can't even imagine, you know, what it is that they are experiencing or going through, here's what we say. Uh, we say at the same time, we want mercy, for our lives, for our, our issues that we have, we look at them and their issues and say, no, nah, why is that an issue? The word of God is clear. It's black and white. Like, like this should be a, a non-issue. I don't, I don't care how you got to that conclusion. I don't care what happened in your life to get you there. I don't care why it is you, you feel that way. God's word says, so turn or burn, baby, right? Do we not do that? Like we are professionals, at wanting to evoke mercy on our issues, on our things in our life. We are so noble for God when it's someone else's struggle, when it's something that they are going through. And we might not vocalize it this way, but here's what we're saying. God, mercy for me, judgment for them. Mercy for me, justice for them. Mercy for me, God, because you know my story. You know what led me to do that. You know where I'm broken. You know why I struggle. You know my, my history, mercy for me, but justice, but judgment for them. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You can't do this. Like it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. Here's how it works. Anytime you're about to enter into a sanctifying challenging discussion or talk that, that admonishes or trains or corrects anybody about their stuff, you better be keenly aware about your own, okay? That's what he's saying. All that to say, I will not give a talk on homosexuality with the goal of doing nothing more than breaking gavels over a podium. Are you with me? Like, I know maybe some of you, that's going to disappoint you because you came in here and you're hoping, you know, Pastor Colby's going to break some gavels, you know, over this podium. You, you, you're looking for that. You know, there's some pent up frustration and anger, perhaps. All this stuff that's going on because of what's happening in our world around us versus, you know, what you read in God's word. Yet there is not a lot of grace in your hearts. And so you're hoping that, that, that I'm going to break some, some gavels over the podium. And if that's the case, you're going to walk out of here disappointed. However, some of you come in here and you're on the opposite end. And if you even begin to sniff a gavel, or you begin to see something that looks like a gavel, you're out. You're walking. You've shut this thing down. You've put up a a wall and chances are like if that's if that's your approach today you're going to be disappointed as well and it's not because colby you know carries any kind of gavel of authority again this is not my word it's because listen i'm as broken and as flawed as anybody else in this room but god's word carries all weight and all authority all of it it carries with it a gavel of authority so whenever we open it and read it 
Like, this is not me doing this. So, you know, we can't help but to sit under the weight and the tension of what it is that we are, are reading. That's why we say God's word really has the ability and the power to change us. Does it not? Because we will experience that. And we're going to experience that today. And so here's the last thing I want to say before we read some, some text, uh, specifically to the LGTP, tell LG, sorry, I'm really not, I'm not trying to. LGTBQ community. Um, and that is some of you, you, you come in here and here's, here's why you show up. Because you walk through these doors and even if you fundamentally disagree and know that, that perhaps a majority of people, you know, don't read it the way that you read it or see it the way that you, you see it, you keep coming. And the reason why you keep coming is because you feel welcome and you feel loved and you feel wanted, right? Every time you walk through the doors, you get hugged, you get a smile, you get a, a warm cup of coffee. And so uh, before I read any verses, Old Testament or New Testament, about a very difficult and complex um, subject, I wanna go on the record and say this church will continue to be a place where even if people fundamentally disagree with what we have to say, with the, what we believe is the truth of the word of God because we believe God's word is, is truth with what we have to say on this subject or a whole bunch of different subjects. This will be a place where in the middle of disagreement, you will always feel the love of God. Are you with me? Always, no questions asked, no compromising on that. This is a place where you are welcome and wanted, always. You always have a cup of coffee. You always can have a hug. You always have a smile. You are always loved. And here's what I believe. We, as people of Christ, should be the ones setting the standard for how to approach topics like this. Everybody's afraid. And that's why I call this a privilege. Everybody wants to, to stay away from things. Now, now, here's what we won't do, just so you're aware. We will not ignore the truth. Because that's not progress. That's not, that's not helpful. And we believe, and you need to know this, and if you weren't here for, for week one, go back to week one in this series, we believe there is such thing as, as truth. Truth has a name. His name is Jesus. He says, I am the way and the, the truth and the life. We believe God's word ultimately is our guide. It is our truth. That is week two. But at the same time, we proclaim truth. This will be a place where every human being, no matter what you're going through, is able to walk through these doors and still struggle. Amen. It's okay. It's okay to not be okay, right? This is, this is a, a hospital for, for sinners, not a museum for saints. Are you with me? That's what this place is. In fact, while we're on the topic of hospitals uh, for a minute, there are two things that are, are fundamental in order for hospitals to be effective in their, their work and in their process of bringing healing. The first one is scientific, is medicine. Like how silly would it be to have a, a hospital with huge rooms and a lot of beds and a, and a lot of great stuff, but never offer any medical treatment, never offer any, uh, you know, like, like a, a protocol. Like that would be a no-brainer. That's what doctors do. They, they come in and they, they give you a treatment plan for you to follow in order to heal. And so I want us to look at, at the part of the, the hospital as being the holy word of God, that this is our treatment plan, that this is what we, we need to follow. And here's the truth. 
about a lot of medicine and a lot of treatment plans in order for them to work, how many of you know sometimes they hurt first? Is that not true? If any of you have ever gone through, through chemotherapy, and at least I know some of you know people who have and you've been, been touched by this, but do you know what chemotherapy does to a body before it heals it? It kills it. Like it kills, that's, that's, that's its, its goal. Or let's talk on a level that we can all relate to that sometimes healing process like, like hurts a little bit. Remember falling off a bike as a kid and scraping your knee or whatever, and your mom comes out there, what does she spray on it? Wasn't that like Bactin or Bactine or something? I don't even know. You remember that stuff? I don't even think they sell that stuff anymore. But it burned. That's all I know. It burned. Did it not? Or she put oil on or alcohol on it, like something to aid in the healing process of it. But the initial sting, you know, it hurt. And so if we're going to be a church that is truly a, a hospital, how crazy would it be for for sinners like us to come in all banged up, broken, wounded, hopeless, needing help, but then we go, we don't actually have any medicine for you, but here's a cup of coffee and a hug, (laughs) right? Hey, that's what's happening in a lot of churches. Offering a lot of hugs, a lot of coffee, but not a lot of of treatment. On the other side of that though, there are churches that that they will stop at just the the prescriptive medication and they are powerful, powerful in in the word of God, but there are two factors that make hospitals great in bringing the, the healing process. And the second one is way more of an art form than it is a science and it is relational. In in fact, in much of the, the trust that you place in a doctor to to give you medicine that you know is going to be painful, to prescribe something that will ultimately help you is what they call in the biz bedside manner. You know what I'm talking about? And bedside manner, this is why, by the way, the nursing staff is, is such a critical part of any, any hospital because they're the ones setting the tone, setting the, the environment. They're the ones building the relationship. They're the ones building the trust with the patient so that when the doctor comes in and says, hey, here's what we have to do, they're like, okay, I trust you. We have a relationship. I trust you. I trust you with that treatment plan. I trust you with with God's word. And so right now, I believe I can make the argument that churches in America on this particular issue of, of sexuality, they could use a little help in the bedside manner department. Because you might flat out reject the treatment plan might flat out reject God's word. And again, that's okay if you do. That's not on me. I don't feel that weight. I don't carry that pressure. Like I am not the doctor in this example of a hospital. Like I'm the nurse. I'm the nurse. I'm the male nurse, right? (laughs) I'm the one that's just saying, hey, here's doctor's orders. Here's what he would prescribe to us. And so I think a lot of churches are failing in the caretaking and in the bedside management part of this. And so I don't take responsibility for how you receive this, but Elevate Church, we do take responsibility for the caretaking. We do take a responsibility for the bedside manner. What does the Bible say? They will know we are Christians by our, our love, by our bedside manner, by the way that we care for people around us. And you need to know that bedside manner is not telling you, hey, it's all going to be okay. 
It's not telling you this won't hurt a bit. In fact, bedside manner is not administering a diluted form of medication. And I refuse, I refuse to give you a watered down version of God's word just because it's a little more palatable. I'm not going to do that either. I believe this is the flawless, holy word of God. And so we're going to cover a bunch of it. And so I would say buckle up. Put your you know, seat backs in the upright position. Your tray tables. I'm going to go over five of the seven different texts in God's word that speak explicitly to homosexuality. I'm going to leave two of them out for time's sake. One is the, the famous um, and creepy story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you've heard of that story, it's in Genesis 19. And by the way, it has been misused in our culture to throw a gavel at the homosexual community. If you read the context of it, even as it's kind of uh, written down again in, in Jude, uh, the book of Jude, in, in verses four and seven, it tells us Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they got God's wrath and God's fire, not because of homosexuality explicitly, uh, just alone, but because here's what the Bible says in Jude, everyone in the whole city was filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Yet that story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been used as a, a poster to say, hey, this is how God handles you know, this kind of behavior, this kind of activity, but it is so much more than that when you get the whole context of it. But chronologically, the second time homosexuality is mentioned is in Leviticus. If you have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. We'll take a look. This is Moses on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Mosaic law from God, which by the way, there are 613 commands that God gave to the nation of Israel, although he knew they weren't going to be able to follow them all because, like, honestly, who could? But in those 613 commands, homosexuality is, is listed twice. Let's read the, the first one in Leviticus 18.22. It says this, Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. And the next time we see it is in Levit Leviticus 20. It says this, If a Man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. Both men have, a committed and have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. Sit under the weight of that for a second. Put to death, guilty of a capital offense. Now, I have seen some very angry-looking men standing on street corners with bullhorns holding posters with this verse on it. Leviticus 2013. And as noble as they think they are in the moment when they do something like that, this right here is not a fair exegesis. I'm only going to use one big word all year long, and that's it right there. Um, that's all I have. It's a seminary word that literally means um, a thorough uh, way to explain God's word with integrity. That's really what, what it means. It's, it's explaining scriptures thoroughly with integrity, but this is not a fair way to exegete that, that passage because it's easy to stand on a street corner and take one isolated passage and build an entire doctrine out of it. That's also called proofreading, and that does not honor God. But capital punishment? Colby, capital punishment is like right there. It's, it's pretty strong language. How are you to, to argue with that? They must be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. Well, if you go four verses earlier in that same chapter, 
it says the same thing about children who dishonor their parents. And it goes on to say, they too must be put to death. However, I have never seen a dude on a street corner saying, hey, somebody please kill my child because they're mean to me, right? I've never seen that. Maybe it's happened somewhere. But we understand that, that we don't do that because parents, at the height of your, your child's rebellion, like as bad as it gets, some of you might even be walking through that now with, with a son or a daughter as horrible uh, you know, as it gets, that's a terrible thought to think somebody would, you know, want to put them to death because of their dishonoring of their parents. No, what do we do as parents? Like, we pray for our children. Like, we get on our knees at night, you know, by their bed, and we beg God, you know, for, for their little hearts and souls, whatever is, is, is going on, praying for them. We're like the father of the, the prodigal son, you know, the, when the son said, I'm going to disrespect you, dad, I want to take my inheritance now, he didn't call together all the Jewish leaders and say, hey, we gotta kill my son. No, what did he do? He said, okay, you can go, but you just need to know that as you're gone, I'm gonna be right here waiting for you to come back, ready to welcome you, ready to love you. And by the way, when you do return back to the Father, like, I'm not gonna bring up your past, I'm not gonna bring up your history, I'm not gonna bring up why you got to where you got to. I'm gonna give you nothing but grace and mercy. I'm gonna put a robe on you. I'm gonna put a ring on your finger. I'm gonna put sandals on your feet. We're gonna throw a party. Why? Because you've come home to the Father. He does not say, I'm gonna celebrate what you did, but I'm gonna celebrate the fact that you came home. I'm just saying, this is why nobody's on the, the street corner with a sign that says, you know, picketing against dishonorable children and how they act toward their parents. However, it's the same law that people point to in Leviticus as the one we just read. The next time it comes up uh, chronologically in the Bible is in Judges chapter 19. Again, this is one where you're not going to read the whole thing, but I can tell you it, it's pretty much the exact same story as Genesis 19. It's almost identical. So now let's jump over into the New Testament. And we'll start with Romans chapter one. It's the first time homosexuality is mentioned explicitly in the New Testament. And the reason why I wanna go from Old Testament to New Testament is because here's the argument people will make sometimes. They'll say, well, Colby, that was Old Testament stuff. Or maybe you've had this debate with people that you, you know in the homosexual community. They'll say, well, that was Old Testament stuff. Like we're, in, we're under the new covenant now. Like that was, that was Old Testament, you know, that Sodom and Gomorrah stuff, that was back then. The Judges stuff, the, the Genesis, Leviticus stuff, that was back then. That was pre, you know, pre-Prozac grumpy God days. And now we got cool new hippie Jesus who's cool with whatever. And that's a lie. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus came with a sword. He came to bring a sword a sword of, of truth. The Bible says that his truth would divide homes, would cause division in a household. And some of you have experienced that on this subject. Have you not? On this topic, it has divided households. You might be living in a divided household. Now the beauty is, Jesus' friend John, the apostle John said this, that he did not just come full of, of truth, but he also came full of of grace, truth and, and grace. And this is what Jesus was a master at, at doing. And therein lies the great mystery and the, the fine line that everyone tries to walk in. 
It's trying to figure out the, the grace mixed with, with the truth, and that's what we're trying to do with all integrity is mix together the grace piece and the truth piece because you understand if Jesus just came with truth and no grace whatsoever, that would be like somebody trying to, to hang a picture in their hallway with a nail and a sledgehammer on that little nail. And you might, you might get the nail in the wall, but you're also going to break the wall. Are you with me? And cause a lot more damage to the wall and probably have to pay more money to get that thing, thing fixed. And that's what happens when there's churches that are all truth, all truth, hammer onto the wall with no bedside manner, with no caretaking, no grace. But on the same lines, and, and the young people need to listen to this, right now there's a lot of uh, perverted, unfinished teachings on grace. And a lot of younger generations are saying, well, you can't judge me. This is the way I feel. This is how, you know, I was, I was created. Let me, let me do me because now I live under, under grace. No, it's grace mixed with truth. Because if you take that same nail and you don't hammer it in with a sledgehammer, but instead you hammer it in with a pool noodle, how many of you know that's not going to work either? That's what it is. It's just all grace, just all, all noodling. Like there are, can I tell you something? I don't know. Maybe I said something wrong. I don't know. I believe there's, a, there's some churches out there that are doing nothing more than, than noodle nailing. If I'm being honest. Grace, 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 grace. And all it is is a bunch of noodle, noodle nailers. Try to say that five times fast. And what happens is when it's all grace, can I tell you something? It ultimately never changes your heart. It never changes your mind. We need grace. We need grace. But you know what grace does? It points us deeper and deeper into the depravity of our own sin and of our own failure. And here's what it causes us to do. Well, this is just the way that I am, I guess. Thank God there's grace for it. I'll never change. I'll never be different. But thank God there's there's, there's grace for it. It's all justifiable under a new covenant. Jesus, who is, you know, no longer, you know, God's no longer angry anymore because he satisfied his, his wrath with, with Christ. And can I tell you something? God is no longer angry. Like Jesus took care of the wrath of God once and for all on the cross. Like he is not angry anymore. But can I tell you something? You know what's never changed about God? His holiness. While his anger has never changed or his anger has changed and has been satisfied, through Christ, his holiness does not change. It stays the same. It's the same today until forever, which is also why God's truth doesn't change. So let's get into what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Here's Paul. He says this, um, and there's a lot of scripture I'm going to read. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And I need to stop here for a hot second because why in the world? I read this over and over. Why in the world would Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? You know what gospel means? Good news. Like why in the world would Paul, Paul say, hey, you know what, guys? I'm not ashamed to tell you good news. I'm like, duh, Paul, neither am I. Like I love telling people good news. Anybody else? Like I love that. So why on earth would Paul sit there and say, hey, guys, I have the best news, and I'm not ashamed to tell you. Here's why Paul is making this statement. You cannot give good news if you don't first lay the groundwork for some really bad news. 
You cannot come under the, the beauty and the power and the weight and the implications of the cross of Christ unless you don't first sit under the weight and the implications of the law. And so this is what, what Paul's saying because one is weighty and one is tense and one reveals to us our need, our desperate need for the cross of Christ. This is why Paul prefaces what we're about to read with, hey, I'm not ashamed of the good news because he's about to say, look at it, verse 18, the wrath of God. That doesn't sound like good news, Paul. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Let's keep going. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Keep going. For although they knew God, check this out, they didn't glorify him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sounds a little bit like our world today. Although they claimed to be wise. Now this sounds a lot like our world today. They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. One more. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then here comes the single most, um, I think, complete definition of idolatry. It says this in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped. And here's how they did it. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul says, here is idolatry. Like when the things of your, your life, whatever they may be, the things that have been created by God, and you start to treat them more like God than you treat God like God. That's what he's saying. That's idolatry. When you are more passionate about a relationship or more passionate about something else, you know, a created thing, then you are passionate about your relationship with God. That is idolatry. And it doesn't just mean people. That, that, you know, we, that can be idols in our life, although relationships can be. I mean, your husband can be an idol. Your, your wife can be an idol. How many of you parents know your children can be idols in our lives? And I, and I understand that. That happens all the time in our culture. And admittedly, this one's hard because what happens when your, your child and God are at odds with each other? Your child and God and God's words are at odds. A lot of times we choose our children, do we not? I understand that as being parents. That's kind of the, 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 the tension that we all have, have to manage. In fact, this is why, you know, when, when little Timmy didn't come to church today because he said he wanted to stay home, you know, and he's like, I don't want to stay home. I don't want to go to church. You're like, okay, I want to be Timmy's friend. Well, you're not called to be Timmy's friend. Yeah, but Timmy had a, had a hard week at school today and he wants to stay, or this week, and he wants to stay home and play his Xbox because at school, you know, the, the cafeteria ran out of paninis and espresso or whatever they're serving these days. I don't know. Back in my day, it was square pizza and Kool-Aid. I'm just saying. That's what it was. You are not called to be little Timmy's friend. 
You are called to be his, his parent. You are called to be the one who points him to who God has called him to be. And he's not going to get that from staying home playing Xbox. Are you with me? But children can become an idol. That's all I'm saying in our life. And let them lead. And I understand that. That's, that's, a, that's a tough tension to manage. But also money. Like we know this. Money is, is one of those things that can be unbelievably useful in the kingdom of God, but it can also be a great form of idolatry, and it is in our country. This is saying anything that you give um, intensity to, uh, time to, passion to, anything other than the creator becomes an idol. And if that's the case, it says this, because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, most people, when making the argument about homosexuality, they stop there. And they do the, see, I told you so. See, this is what, what God's word says. It's right here. And they give this, this unfair view that this must be the highest form of idolatry because Paul uses it as a specific example to make a greater point. And by the way, you know why Paul did this? Paul is in Rome. And do you know what was prevalent in Roman culture? Homosexuality. Like, it was way more prevalent than we even experience it today. And we think, you know, it's, it's pretty prevalent in our, our culture today. But Paul is addressing an issue that was happening in Rome. In fact, the two other times Paul mentions it is one, he's talking to Ephesus because it's happening there. And the other one is probably the single most uh, place that homosexuality was prevalent. It was in Corinth where he addresses it. And we're going to read that one in a moment. But sometimes people will use that, that to argue. Well, Paul talks about, Paul talks about, Jesus never talks about it. And if I'm going to go between Paul or Jesus, I'm definitely sticking with, with Jesus. However, that is an unfair argument as well, saying that Jesus never expressly says anything about homosexuality. I don't have time to dive into this today, but if you're reading the scriptures with any amount of integrity, like there are a, a, a million things that you and I would probably agree Jesus would not agree with that he never specifically mentions in God's words, like specifically. So that's not a fair argument. But Paul is not saying here that the ultimate manifestation of idolatry is homosexuality. He's saying this is one example of how it manifests. In fact, what we're about to read, we're all about to find out. Every time it's listed in the New Testament, this, this topic of homosexuality, it's always a part of a list. It is never in isolated fashion. And we're about to discover that every single one of us in this room make this list. And this is a weighty list. It says this in verse 28, keep reading. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they did or would do what they ought not to do. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Let's see if you find yourself on this list. Greed, evil, greed. Greed is the great American pastime, is it not? Depravity, they're full of envy. I'm busted. Murder. Not unless deer and fish count. And ticks. Ticks. How about this? Strife. Been there. Deceit. 
Ask my parents. Malice, hope not, but maybe. Gossips, go to some of our small groups. <laughs> Slanderers, those are gossips on steroids. God-haters, that's a strong one. Insolent, not sure what that means. Arrogant, guilty, boastful. I've been there, not proud of that, but I make the list there. Anybody else make this list? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, they approve of those who practice them. Let's go to the next one, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Check out the beginning of this list. Or do you not know that wrongdoers, I think we all make the list there wrongdoers the first thing he he mentioned remember this is this is plank work today like we're dealing with the core we're going to get to the sawdust in in just a minute but we're doing plank work do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of god can we just sit under the weight of that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral now, I can't go any further than that, and here's why. We will not isolate a, a topic of homosexuality and let everyone else off the hook. That's not what this church is about. That's not what this day is about. Why? Because the word of God does not do it. Doesn't do it. It's always sandwiched in a, a list that if we are honest with ourselves in this room, we all find ourselves on. When it says sexually immoral, I mean, I can promise you this. If you are here and you deal with homosexuality and that's a struggle of yours, and that's something you are, are fighting perhaps, or you're, you're here and you're blatant about it and we just agreed to disagree on this, but you keep coming because you like the caretaking, you know, you like the bedside manner of the church, you just keep coming. We love that you are here worshiping, hearing the word. We think you should be here and we love the fact that you feel comfortable doing that. But let me tell you, Elevate Church, with great sobriety, heterosexual sexual immorality is 10 times more rampant in the church. 10 times. Where do you get that from? Stats on pornography? Conversations that, that, that I've, I've had? See, we don't, we don't get to get off the hook in this, this talk. We don't get to isolate a single behavior that the New Testament does not isolate, or the Old Testament for that matter, and it's, you know, 613 commands that none of us on our best day could, could follow. There's young people shacking up with each other, and they're, they're saying that the reason is because it's, it makes sense financially. You know what that is? Sexual immorality. Anything that happens outside of the context of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, according to God's word, is sexual immorality. So we don't get to get off the hook, is what I'm saying. Sleeping together? What about, what about porn? Well, Colby, you know, I, you know, what I watch is just soft porn. There's no such thing. Soft porn, hard porn, you know what? It all destroys your soul. It all takes a toll on your, your spirit. It is sexually uh, immoral, anything. And so now this list just became way more inclusive, did it not? 
Let's keep reading. Nor idolaters, we know what that is. Nor adulterers. Now we get to the homosexual mention. Nor men who have sex with men. And that's not at the beginning of the list. It's not at the end of the list, like a a crescendo, like this is the one that God hates above all else. It's right there in the middle of it, almost as if Paul is going through it saying, yeah, of course that, and of course that, and of course this, you know, of course all that. It doesn't draw specific attention to it like we do in our culture, and I understand why we do. It's not because we are self-righteous. It's just because it's the topic of the day. It's because of what is so prevalent in our, our nation right now. It says men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Again, this list is getting smaller and smaller, nor drunkards or slanderers or swindlers. How'd you do on your taxes this year? Will inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that's awful news when we begin to see ourselves on that, that list. And if Paul stopped there, where so many people stop when making the the homosexual argument. They never read what Paul writes next because this is what Paul does. Man, you guys can help me wrap this thing up. Here's what Paul does. He positions us squarely. He positions me. He positions you. He positions all of us under the weight of the law so that he can amplify the cross of Christ. Because he says this in verse 11, and watch, that's what some of you were. That's what you were. You know what that means to me? That means we actually have ability to be different. There's actually, I'm I'm gonna pose a question. I'm gonna say something at the end. It's gonna sound super arrogant and that's really not my intention. I want you to know that. I just want you to be ready for it when it comes. He says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Here's the best one, you were justified. You know what that means? This is how I learned it. Justification means just as if. I never sinned like it never happened. That's how far God is able to remove our sins from us. The Bible says as far as the East is from the West, And he's like, and none of that you did on your own. It was in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He's reminding a group of people, a group of Gentile followers of Jesus who became saved because they heard the good news of the gospel, because they trusted in a man named named Jesus. And Jesus changed their heart, changed their lives. And they were falling back into some sin patterns in their life. And they were probably, you know, in that place of, well, you don't know my backstory. You don't know how I got here. You don't know what I I went through. And Paul is lovingly coming to them and saying to them, let me remind you of something. Like you need to understand the weight and sit under the weight of the law so you can understand the, the, the beauty of the cross that you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been washed. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And so Paul's begging them. He's like, why would you go back to that? That's what you were. Why would you go back to sexual immorality? Why would you go back to homosexuality? Why would you go back to all these other things that he listed? Why would you go back to swindling, thievery, drunkenness? This is Paul going, listen, there's something better that God has for your your life. And in the midst of your struggle, somebody needs to, to hear me say this right now. Jesus is enough. 
He's enough. In the middle of whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is I'm going through, because we all find ourselves on that list, in the middle of our struggle bus, Jesus is enough. Even if you have made such good friends with your struggle. Because we do that, don't we? We say, this is just who I am. We get so tired and fed up, maybe you're worn out, and we make friends with our, our struggle. And that's when we start creating these backstories as to why we are the way that we are and the complexity of it. And here's why I carry this, this sin so that everybody else in the middle of my own struggle can say, oh, we have mercy for you. We have grace for you. Here you go. But when it's their issue, when it's their problem, we're like, get it right. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. You used to be this way as well. But you were washed and sanctified and made just. See, you know what the law does? The law forces the human heart to have no other option no other option than the cross of Christ. That's what the law does. Like the, there's, the law is actually beautiful when you think about it. When we sit under it, we just realize there was no other way. For me, there was no other way for you than through the cross of Christ. And if it wasn't for that cross, then the, the law wouldn't be a beautiful thing. The law would actually be a condemning thing. And the Bible says there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. So unless we sit under moments like this, unless we do plank work like this, it is impossible for us to start picking sawdust out from people's eyes. Unless we never first sit under the weight of that, we can't appreciate what Christ did on, on the cross. So let me answer the burning question, is homosexuality a sin? Because I want to be clear on this. We believe homosexuality is not God's original intent. That's not his best for your life. According to scripture, not man's option, opinions. According to God's word, that's not your best. We don't believe it's God's best for your life and therefore we call homosexuality a sin. And to remove it from this list of things that we read that, that we all see ourselves under to say, well, you know what? To make it more palatable, in our culture today to say, well, everything but that, everything but, but this. Like instead, you know, people try to find a bunch of ways to do some theological gymnastics to make it look like God's cool with it, Jesus is cool with it. Hey, if he's not cool with slander or gossip or, or, or sexual immorality, here's what I wanna know the highest form of idolatry in here. See, nobody, nobody should, should ever in this room read God's word and be comfortable with where you are. It doesn't matter what you're walking through. It doesn't matter what you're personally going through because God's word teaches us his holy nature that you and I are so far removed from on a daily basis that all we can do is say, apart from Jesus, if it weren't for Jesus and what he's done for me. So God shouts with a, a megaphone from the Old Testament to the New Testament that he is holy. He's holy. It shows us how far our sin has taken from us. So I know today, listen, I know today was a little bit of, of biblical chemotherapy. 
for all of us, me included, me included. But in order for there to be healing, in order for there to be growth and movement in our lives, first we gotta do some plank work before we can call a speck in someone else's eye. Would you stand up to your feet? And we're gonna worship through this. God, I pray right now that we would get to that place and arrive at that place where we would understand that apart from you, Jesus, like we're all toast and that we all needed a savior, every single one of us. All of us see ourselves on that list and we're reminded God, for those of us who are our followers of Jesus, perhaps that we have fallen so far from that, we're just, we're just reminded that these are our weighty conversations. They, they really are. We're not talking about, we're talking about eternal issues. We'll inherit the kingdom of God type of issues. So I just pray right now, God, that your spirit would move and lead us into truth and convict us and challenge us because here's what I believe. I believe that every single one of us in this room can change. Because I see myself on that list multiple times over and I know that I'm becoming more and more like Christ as I daily surrender my life to follow him. So even if it sounds arrogant, I believe no matter where you fall on that list, you can change. And so God, help us to do that. Help us to worship you look to you. Speak to us right now, even as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message on the Elevate Church podcast. We hope you really enjoyed it. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. Welcome to the family. We would love to know about it, so please let us know by going to elevatechurch.com slash yes. There will be some practical resources to help you as you start this journey. If you want to support the mission and vision of Elevate, go to elevatechurch.com slash give. Thank you for living generously. We hope you enjoyed this message. Have a great week.